The Need for Reconciliation and Unity John 17, formerly referred to as the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus Christ, is a wonderful place to see the work of reconciliation and unity in the body of Christ. In this prayer, Jesus rehearses the work of redemption between the Father and the Son and gives a clear blueprint of God's design and how He has saved His elect people. This chapter serves the church by reminding the people of God that they are caught up in a work of reconciliation and currently reside in a state of unity with God. To that end, the church's work is to be situated in a reconciliation and unity context. In John 17, Jesus speaks of the unified plan of redemption between the Father and the Son. Quote, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. John 17, 1-2 Here the work of redemption is described as a collective work of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mentioned in prior chapters. That is to say, there is a spirit of the purest sense of unity in the Godhead, in the effort to accomplish the work of redemption. Additionally, God's work of redemption is also a work of reconciliation. Quote, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, verse 14, and verses 16 through 17. This work of redemption is a work of reconciliation. As these people are distinguished from a world full of hate and animosity towards God. It follows that the people who are afforded God's work of redemption will also be people set apart from the hatred of the world to a life of reconciliation and unity among one another. This is fully expressed toward the end of Jesus' prayer. Quote, I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one. John 17, 23. This language of oneness is unmistakably one of unity among God's redeemed people. How then are these implications brought to bear in the work and life of the church? In an article concerning the state of the church, Mark Dever describes four particular problems facing the church today, one of which is the problem of sectarianism. Dever makes the point by way of contrast, quote, What unites us as Christians must always be valued more highly than the things that distinguish us, unquote. The opposite of this is the reality of sectarianism in the church. But how is a church to practice unity in a context where contrasting denominational expressions are normative? This problem is inescapable sectarianism is perhaps the most prominent of the four within my own area. Locally, there's a diversity of denominations, music type, church size, and political leanings, all of which are often situated in churches right next to each other. This makes for a very consumeristic free market of church shopping, and so long as churches are presented in this consumeristic way, there will inevitably be a type of tribalism or sectarianism present. While nations should leave people free to find a church that matches their own theological convictions, there are instances when sectarianism goes well beyond issues of worship choice. Take, for example, a hypothetical scenario here. A Presbyterian church recently receives a family into their congregation 
a family of which the husband was formerly an elder at a Reformed Baptist church down the road. This man recently became convinced that baptism is appropriate to be administered both to believers and to their children, a view that is very much in conflict with his Baptist church teaching. However, his fellow elders responded not only by stepping him down from leadership, but also by voting his entire family out of the church. It is understandable in a denomination that is literally named for their view of the sacrament of baptism, i.e. Baptist, that leaders should not hold a view in contradiction with the church. But voting his entire family out of the church would be a gross example of sectarianism. How then can churches overcome such examples of sectarianism? Perhaps one approach is to continually ask the question, how does our doctrine and polity or form of government in the church foster an environment of unity rather than sectarianism? In this hypothetical example, the Reformed Baptist Church may indeed have a robust doctrinal system, which should be cause for admiration. Yet, how might the polity of this church prohibit unity and reconciliation? As a congregational polity, which is what Baptist churches are, this church upholds the autonomy of the local church, meaning that no religious hierarchy may dictate their beliefs or practices. There are certainly cases where this is a helpful polity for churches, but perhaps not in this case. By virtue of their polity, the church's decision to excommunicate the family is final. The family has no one to appeal to or direction to go besides out the door, at least in formal membership. By contrast, take for example the polity of Presbyterian churches. There are checks and balances in place in a Presbyterian polity that would either not allow for this instance to take place or provide a proper path of appeal for the family going forward. While the democratic process of congregational voting is practiced in Presbyterianism as it is in Baptist churches, the session of elders in the Presbyterian church are subject to the regional presbytery, and the regional presbytery is accountable to the general assembly of the denomination. While this example of excommunication would not take place in a Presbyterian church, since a Presbyterian view of baptism is not required for church membership, its theoretical occurrence within a Presbyterian church would still afford the family an appeal process, if they believed their local church were acting in an unreasonable way. To be sure, excommunication is a serious affair that should never be taken lightly. Yet there are times when excommunication protects the unity of the church. A biblical example of this is found in 1 Corinthians. Paul demonstrates that the sexual unrepentant sin of a congregant was grounds for excommunication. See 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A very clear, simple process for the right way forward is to pray for repentance and reconciliation within the local congregation. The church discipline process, including excommunication, is properly brought to completion when it results in welcoming back the repentant sinner. See 2 Corinthians chapter 2, for example. However, the biblical grounds for this process are in dealing with matters of sin, not matters of how one views the proper application of the sacrament of baptism. 
The point of this hypothetical is not to argue for a Presbyterian form of government, although that is what I advocate for, but neither is it to charge everyone belonging to a congregational denomination with sectarianism. Rather, the point is to demonstrate that churches and church members should think beyond consumeristic considerations of church fellowship. It is the responsibility of all Christians to ask whether their Christian fellowship in its fullness, its doctrine, its polity, its leadership, its discipline, fosters the best expression of unity, and if not, whether there are things in place to ensure a path forward for reconciliation. In this example, it seems unlikely that the church has a path forward for reconciliation unless this man changes his mind about baptism. And for that, it seems quite sectarian to make that a dividing issue for church fellowship. All varieties of churches have their own issues to deal with in terms of sectarianism. But it must be remembered that God's people are to strive towards the environment to which they have been caught up in. And that is one of reconciliation and unity.